Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the August 10th, 2021 episode of Unchained. My book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, is available for pre-order on Amazon, Barnes Noble, Bookshop.org, or any of your other favorite bookstores. Go to bit.ly slash cryptopians. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash C-R-Y-P-T-O-P-I-A-N-S. Tezos is smart money that's redefining what it means to hold and exchange value in a digitally connected world. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. The Crypto.com app lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place. Earn up to 8.5% interest on your Bitcoin and 14% interest on your stablecoins, paid weekly. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 with the code LAURA. The link is in the description. Today's guest is Justin Drake, researcher at the Ethereum Foundation. Welcome, Justin. Hi there. Thanks for having me, Laura. So we're here to discuss ETH as ultrasound money. But before we dive into all that, why don't we start with you giving your background and telling us what you do at the Ethereum Foundation now, because I think it informs our discussion about the idea of ETH as ultrasound money. Sure. So I've been at the Ethereum Foundation officially since uh, December 2017. And also explain how you got into crypto before that. So I got into crypto in late 2013. It was the, the bubble all the way up to $1,000 for Bitcoin. Um, and I fell down the rabbit hole pretty quickly. Um, I started the Cambridge Bitcoin Meetup Group in the UK. And then I started operating a Bitcoin ATM. And then I started uh, a company that was uh, trying to make uh, Open Bazaar, which is a peer-to-peer um, marketplace built on top of Bitcoin, easy to use. Um, and then my startup didn't do so well. Open Bazaar also didn't do so well. When I left my, my startup, um, basically I was looking for open problems in the space. Uh, and I was especially interested in Ethereum. And uh, Vitalik gave this presentation on what's called the uh, data availability problem. So I spent some time uh, thinking about this problem for, for a couple of weeks. Um, and I had some ideas that seemingly no one else had in the space. So I emailed Vitalik with my ideas and, you know, he, he liked my ideas and, you know, we had this, this kind of long email thread. Um, and, uh, kind of a few weeks later, he, he hired me and I joined the Ethereum Foundation. So that was in uh, December 2017. So I've been at the Ethereum Foundation for a bit over three and a half years. And, um, I guess my, my role has, has evolved as, um, Ethereum 2 has evolved because I've been focused on Ethereum 2. So, when I joined, there were very, very few people working on Ethereum 2. It was actually quite shocking how few people. I thought, you know, this, this 
multi-billion dollar project, you know, looking to make this huge upgrade, surely they must have like a massive team. It turned out it was like a handful of people. Um, and so I joined in uh, then and basically working on pretty blue sky kind of de design questions, like how are we going to design sharding? You know, I, I started focusing on, on sharding. And then as time went on, you know, we went from research to spec design. So the Ethereum Foundation, part of what we do is um, producing the spec for the Ethereum protocol that then gets implemented by various teams around the world. So this is a very unique um, kind of model where there's a, a decoupling from of the protocol and the spec versus the implementation. And I guess now that a lot of the the, the research um, has been has been done, you know, my, my role has shifted a little bit. So for example, I've helped uh, hiring. So we're hiring, we've hired actually some security researchers because one of the things we want to do soon is the merge, uh, basically securing Ethereum purely with proof of stake, no more proof of work. And so we want to make sure that the proof of stake uh, foundational layer, which is called the beacon chain, is as robust as possible. So we really want to have this very strong before the merge. Another thing that we're doing, and this is kind of a, a general theme, is that as blockchains become more and more sophisticated, they rely more and more on cryptography. And so we're building in-house within the EF um, a, a relatively large team of cryptographic experts um, helping us with all sorts of primitives um, that will be part of the Ethereum consensus, the layer one. My role uh, you know, in the last few months has changed yet again. Um, you know, now I'm kind of, um, at the meme layer, what we call layer zero, the, the, the kind of under layer one, like the, the, the people, um, you know, being, uh, navigating this, this new space for me, which is very interesting, uh, through the ultrasound money meme. Oh, interesting. Okay. So there are so many things that we'll dive into, um, based on what you talked about, but, but just, uh, to mention for people, some of the terms that you named there, the merges where Ethereum one apps uh, move over to this beacon chain, which is the beginning of this new Ethereum 2.0, the proof of stake network. And so we'll talk about that more in a second. But first, let's talk about the most recent news. So we're recording on Friday, August 6th. And on Thursday, Ethereum underwent a major hard fork, which implemented Ethereum Improvement Proposal 1559. And that essentially changes the monetary policy of Ethereum pretty significantly. So tell us what EIP-1559 does. Ethereum-1559 does a lot. Um, and, you know, the one of the original motivations was around user experience, to improve the user experience. And one of the main things there is that um, right now, when you want to use Ethereum, you don't know how much you need to pay. So there's basically two options. Option number one is you underpay in terms of the gas price and your transaction doesn't get included on chain or it doesn't get in included on chain when you want it. It becomes pending um, for a period of time that you don't want. Option number two is that you overpay and then you basically end up wasting um, some money putting your transactions on chain. So one of the benefits of EIP-1559 is that users will know 99% of the time what fee to pay and if they pay that, they will just get included on chain. So it's a much better user experience. EIP-1559 also improves security. And this is a bit of a subtle thing, but um, it turns out that transaction fees, so-called MEV, um, are 
the fuel for reorgs. Um, if you have uh, a, a transaction fee which goes in the block, another miner could go and take that transaction fee and put it in another in his block as opposed to that other miner's block. And so um, one of the things that EIP-1559 does is that it, it reduces the value that can be extracted by by miners or by validators um, simply by burning some of the transaction fees that would otherwise potentially be used as fuel for, for, for reorgs. And then um, this final aspect, which you mentioned, which is the monetary policy aspect is that we don't want to be overpaying for security. So when you look at um, the uh, fuel for the security engine, if you will, so the, the consensus engine, which could be proof of work or proof of stake, is fueled by one um, issuance and number two by transaction fees. And what we've done in Ethereum is that we've set the issuance to be large enough such that alone they are sufficient to secure the blockchain. And so anything above the um, the issuance is kind of overspending for security. And so the idea here is that instead of overspending for security, let's destroy the ETH, thereby reducing um, the, the ETH supply, uh, basically strengthening the monetary properties of ETH. And so in a way, this the goals of EIP-1559 were to create more efficiency, both from a user standpoint in terms of paying fees, and then also from a security standpoint. And so, you know, why does that matter necessarily for the security of Ethereum, just to make it more efficient? You know, what is the problem with maybe like overpaying for security? Or I don't know, were there ever times when Ethereum was underpaying for it? Or just kind of describe for me how security worked prior to EIP-1559. Right. So what we're actually doing with EIP-1559 is actually reducing the security in a way. And the reason is that we're reducing the the security budget that would go to miners. So um, the amount of revenue that miners uh, will be receiving will be reduced. Um, and that will most likely reduce the, the hash rate. In terms of um, what we're trying to achieve here is two things. One is guaranteed security. And the way that we achieve guaranteed security is using issuance, right? Issuance is the best form of fuel for security because it's 100% predictable. It's non-volatile. You know, you can just set it to be exactly the same amount for every single block. And it cannot be stolen, right? The, the issuance, uh, in a, in a given block can't be kind of stolen by the, the next miner, uh, in, in the same way that transaction fees could, right? If there is a transaction, uh, which is worth a million dollars, that transaction could be included in block A or it could be included in block B. And that really affects the, the, the game theory. So that's the first thing we want to achieve. We want to achieve guaranteed security with issuance. And now that we have that, we want to achieve economic efficiency in the sense that we don't want to be wastefully paying for security. If we don't have to expand the security budget, let's not, let's not do it. It's just wasting money. So instead, what we do is that we're, we capture the value, um, from the transactional utility of Ethereum in terms of transaction fees. And, um, this is done through the, the burning of transaction fees. And that, as I mentioned, is going to, 
provide a um, deflationary pressure on the ETH supply is going to be reducing uh, the, um, the total uh, amount of ETH uh, in circulation, thereby improving the monetary qualities of, 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 of Ether. All right. So this leads us to the main topic for today, which is this idea that ETH could be turning into what people in the Ethereum ecosystem are calling ultrasound money. So what were the characteristics of ETH as money before the upgrade? And what would you say they are now? And why would you call that ultrasound money? Right. I mean, one of the things that's kind of uh, useful is to understand what, what, what is money, right? So money for me is a money candidate with monetary premium. Okay. So what is a money candidate and what is monetary premium? A money candidate is an asset which has various characteristics, which means that it could potentially be used at money. It's durable. It's divisible. It's fungible. It's transmissible, blah, 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 blah. So if you look, for example, at a cow, a cow that will never be money, right? Because it's not easily divisible. You know, the head is not equivalent to the tail and, you know, it's not durable and it's not transmissible easily. Um, on the other hand, if you take an asset like, uh, you know, salt, for example, that was used in money, as money or gold or Bitcoin, they have all these basic properties, but it's not sufficient to be a, a money candidate. You know, you can look at all the coins on coin market cap. Most of them are not money. And the reason is that they, they haven't really achieved monetary premium. Now, what is monetary premium? It's this idea that the asset, the money candidate has value beyond its, its raw utilitarian value. And maybe a good way to illustrate that is gold. If you look at gold, um, which has a, a market cap of $12 trillion, it has, um, kind of utilitarian value as an industrial metal. So for example, gold is used in every single iPhone. And people have estimated that the utilitarian value of gold is roughly a trillion dollars. And so there's this extra $11 trillion, which is, you know, monetary premium, um, because, you know, central banks will keep gold in, in vaults and all sorts of, of reasons around money. And so monetary premium is really kind of this, magic meme power where somehow society agrees that this this one asset is special in some way and we're going to endow it some special value and you know various assets have achieved this idea of having monetary premium one of which is gold another one for example is bitcoin um, and ether as well arguably has monetary premium now in terms of how ether is actually used as money today it's mostly used as money um as a collateral money. So what does that mean? It means that ETH as a programmable asset can be um, placed as collateral, for example, in a small contract. And this collateral can be used to fuel DeFi. So um, right now there's about 10 million ETH that is placed as collateral in DeFi. And, and so this, this money is, this ETH is used as money in the context of DeFi. Um, there's actually a second way that ETH is used as money, also as collateral, but here it's at layer one, not layer two, is with staking. So there's about 6.5 million ETH, which is used as collateral money in the context of staking. ETH is also used as money in the sense that it's used to pay for transaction fees. Now, um, this aspect of money in a way is relatively weak uh, because it's uh, doesn't improve scarcity. Like when, if you used ETH 
you know, a week ago to pay for transaction <laughs> fees, uh, then this ETH will go to the miners and basically you just be circulating ETH as kind of a, a closed system. Whereas now, uh, whenever you, um, going to spend ETH is very similar to gasoline. You're just going to burn it and it's going to be destroyed and you're kind of improving the scarcity of the thing. And so that's kind of a, a way in which EIP-1559 improves the monetary qualities um, of ETH. Yeah. And it does so in a way where um, the value of Ethereum um, contains within it the amount of usage it's getting. So the more popular Ethereum is, then essentially the more ETH that will be burned, which should then make ETH the asset more valuable. So in that exactly. regard, like it, yeah, it kind of captures that. Then for this term ultrasound money, um, how would you say that that description now applies to or or will eventually apply to ETH? I guess once once all these changes are implemented, first now EIP one five five nine, and then later eventually the merge. Right. So I guess before talking about ultrasound money, it's maybe good to understand what is sound money. Um, so the word sound money actually comes from silver and gold. And the reason is that there was this thing called the ping test, uh, which was uh, kind of a sound-based test to determine if a coin was a real silver or real gold. So what you do is that you put the coin on your finger like this, and then you take another coin and then you tap it and it go ding. And there was this characteristic ding that, you know, silver coins and gold coins had, and you could use that to check if they were real. Um, <laughs> now, this is kind of a, a metaphor for something kind of uh, deeper, which is this idea that sound money is a money that cannot be debased. And, and here, you know, we're using these metal-based monies in comparison, for example, to fiat money. So in fiat money, um, you know, you have a central entity who could kind of arbitrarily debase the money. And what does debase mean? It means just ar arbitrarily inflating the supply, increasing the supply. With these metal-based monies, you have this idea of a capped supply. And that's very powerful because you're protected against uh, debasing. I guess um, ultrasound money takes this no debasing idea to uh, kind of the next level where I guess the opposite of debasing might be rebasing. So it's not only preventing kind of the debasing, but it's allowing the rebasing of the money is kind of strengthening over time with this idea that not only do we have a supply cap, but we actually have a decreasing supply over time. Because as you said, the transactional utility of Ethereum is being captured by this fee burn. And if the transactional utility is greater than the security budget that we're expending, then the supply decreases. And just to give you uh, an order of magnitude, in the last 20, well, in the first 24 hours since EIP 1559 was launched, um, we've had 4.6 thousand ETH burnt, and that's the equivalent of roughly $7 million. So that's about $5,000 every single minute being burnt. Um, now, historically, um, if you look, if you, if you really zoom out, um, the, uh, fee volume, which is the, the total amount of, of fees on the Ethereum network since Genesis has grown a factor of 10 every single year for the course of six years. So that's, that's how long, that's how old Ethereum is, only six years old. And what we've observed is that over the six years of Ethereum, we've had an exponential growth, a factor of 10x increase in the total 
fee volume for Ethereum. Now, today, even today, the, the fee burn is greater than the proof of stake issuance uh, by a factor of four. Um, so, um, in the last 24 hours, the proof of stake issuance was 1,125, whereas the, um, the burn was over 4,500. So, um, you know, what, what we say colloquially is that we're, we've reached ultra Mac four in the sense that not only have we broken this, the, the ultrasound barrier, but we've broken it by a factor of four. And so once we don't have the proof of uh, work issuance, uh, which will happen at the merge, then almost certainly the supply will start uh, decreasing. And as I mentioned, because the fee volume historically has just kept on increasing and, and it's a very nascent uh, system, which is providing relatively little utility for the whole world, we can expect that the uh, the total fee volume will dramatically increase as the utility that Ethereum um, is able to provide grows. Okay, so um, before we get to the merge, at which point it could be that the ETH supply does become just truly deflationary, we will also, um, or, or now we do have these three main drivers of ETH. And I know that the Ethereum community likes to describe them in terms that might be appealing to people who like physics um, <laughs> because they're described in terms of features like a solid, features like a liquid, and like a gas. So can you explain that analogy? Absolutely. So I, I like to think of, of money as, as water kind of flowing in, in a system. And water has different states of matter depending on its temperature. Um, and it turns out that the there's three scarcity engines in Ethereum that have, that corresponds to different states of matter for water. So on the cold side of the spectrum, on the minus zero, we have this idea that money, ETH is frozen, um, when it is staked. So when you stake ETH, you take your ETH, you place it as collateral and you don't get to touch it while you're validating. And if you do want to exit the validating process as an exit queue so that not everyone can leave the queue at the same time, it actually takes several months, you know, for this ice cube to melt as it were. <laughs> On the other side of the temperature spectrum, we have the very hot. We have the above a hundred degrees, um, where basically water becomes gas. And this is the idea of the, the burn, the fee burn, where we're literally vaporizing ETH and we're having it leave the supply. And then on the middle, uh, we have this third scarcity engine, which is DeFi. So what is DeFi? It's basically taking ETH as collateral, but it's not as cold as staking in the sense that you can take it out you know, more freely. And you can think of it as being liquid water, which is trapped in the pipes of DeFi. Um, and so these three mechanisms in their own different ways are basically sucking out the liquidity and, and like literally the liquid money that is kind of on exchanges and things like that, um, thereby effectively reducing the liquid supply of ETH and improving uh, the, the, the scarcity properties of ETH. Yeah, and for the liquid version, um, when you talk about it being stuck in the pipes of DeFi, since it's used as collateral, of you know, if in the case of MakerDAO, it's put up as collateral to mint DAI, then that DAI is used for something, you know, unless that person gets their 
um, position liquidated, then that ETH there is also kind of, it's not exactly cold the way it would be if it stakes, but you know, it's, it's kind of temporarily locked up and, and not, um, and not easily burnt. Um, so one last question for you. Um, I think that each of these states has a fun sound effect attached to it. Do you want to? <laughs> Absolutely. Let me get my states. So we have, um, gas money, which is being burnt, which sounds like this. And so every time you make a transaction on Ethereum, you need to hear in your mind the satisfying sound. Um, and then we have, um, you know, the process of taking liquid ETH and solidifying it when you're staking, which sounds like this. So you should imagine kind of the, the water crystals forming as you're, um, freezing the, the, the money. And then you have, you know, the, the, the DeFi pipes where you have water slushing around. That sounds a bit like this. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. I love it. All right. So let's now talk about that big milestone that we keep referring to, which is the next big step to ETH potentially becoming ultrasound money. And that is called the merge. So can you explain a little bit more about what the merge is and why that is going to be such an important step to ETH potentially becoming ultrasound money? So um, the merge is a very important step uh, for Ethereum because it fundamentally changes the way that Ethereum is secured. So right now we have proof of work and proof of stake running in parallel, both at the same time, but all the economic value all the DeFi, all the dApps and whatnot are being secured by the proof of work. The proof of stake really right now is in its uh, time testing phase, right? We want to, we want to make sure that it is robust. Um, and that there's enough ETH that is being staked so that this, this proof of stake beacon chain, um, is solid enough to receive all the economic value that's being secured by Ethereum. Now at the merge, um, which is when we will determine that, you know, the beacon chain is secure enough, we will basically remove the proof of work and replace it by a proof of stake. The, the contracts don't have to do anything. It will just keep on working. It's just that underneath, um, you know, be, behind the, the curtains, um, the, the, the security mechanism will change. So that's one big change. It's like from a security standpoint where we're changing and we're actually dramatically improving the security of Ethereum. And th th there's basically two reasons. One is around uh, the concept of economic security. Like how much does it cost to actually attack the beacon chain? And you can look at basically how much ETH is being staked. So there's roughly 17, actually maybe $18 billion of ETH staked right now. And so if you want to perform kind of this 51% attack, you have to match as an attacker the 18 billion ETH. So quite, it's a very expensive attack from a budget standpoint. Uh, but we have this other cool trick uh, up our sleeve, which is that if an attack does happen, and it is possible that an attack will happen, then um, we can penalize the attacker economically with slashing. So we can take a very large portion of this 18 billion ETH and just destroy it. Um, and this is a process that can happen automatically with automatic slashing. Um, so we basically have a system which is self-healing. So it is possible to attack it, but it's self-healing. And this is very different from Bitcoin. 
if for some reason or another on Bitcoin, an attacker has more than 50% of the hash rate, then they basically have God mode. They can do whatever they want. They can do arbitrarily long kind of censorship. They can do these reorgs. Um, you know, they, they really have a God mode without the possibility of the system healing itself. So that's the security aspect. But the other very exciting thing is the economic efficiency. The, we will be dramatically improving the economic efficiency. And the reason is that proof of work issuance is too damn high to use a kind of this common meme. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and um, just to give you the kind of a, uh, a reason for that is because the, the proof of work issuance has to pay for two things. It has to pay for the mining hardware and it has to pay for the electricity running the mining hardware. And these are two expenses that we don't have in proof of stake. The main expense for stakers is the cost of money, right? So they're taking their ETH, they're locking it. And so the, the opportunity cost of not having this ETH kind of working for them somewhere else, that's the real cost. And so that's what we need to um, kind of um, account for and compensate in terms of issuance for proof of stake. And to give you kind of an order of magnitude, then the cost of money is roughly, you know, three, four, 5%, kind of the low single digits percentages. On the other hand, the cost of economic security on proof of work systems is more like 100% annualized. So for every $1 of economic security, um, you're going to have to spend in terms of issuance $1 to cover both the hardware and the electricity. And so you have this roughly factor of 20x improvement in the issuance. And for Ethereum specifically, the issuance is, is actually going to go down roughly by, by 10x. Um, and we have this meme, which we call the triple halvening, right? So in Bitcoin land, every time you halven, you, the issuance uh, is, it reduces by a factor of two. But we're going to be doing at least three halvenings in one go because we'll be reducing by more than 8x the, the, the issuance. And so once we remove the proof of work issuance, we're left with just the proof of stake issuance. And that, as I mentioned, the proof of stake issuance is smaller than the burn, at least in the first 24 hours, uh, where the burn was four times larger than the proof of stake issuance. And so if that trend continues, meaning that if the, if the proof of stake issuance continues to be smaller than the burn, then the EVE supply will decrease. And the, the rough Projection is that the Ethereum supply will peak at the merge, and that will be when the ETH supply is roughly 120 million. So 120 million will kind of become the equivalent of Bitcoin's 21 million. But of course, you know, Bitcoin will inflate for another century until it reaches 21 million. Uh, Ethereum will be kind of a century earlier reaching its peak and will from that point uh, onwards start uh, decreasing. Yeah, which this part is incredibly fascinating to me. So um, in a moment, we're going to talk a little bit more about your projections and how all this will play out. But first, a quick word from the sponsors who make this show possible. With over 10 million users, Crypto.com is the easiest place to buy and sell over 90 cryptocurrencies. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. If you're a hodler, Crypto.com Earn pays industry-leading interest rates on over 30 coins, including Bitcoin, at up to 8.5% interest and up to 14% interest on your stablecoins. 
When it's time to spend your crypto, nothing beats the Crypto.com Visa card, which pays you up to 8% back instantly and gives you 100% rebate for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. There is no annual or monthly fees to worry about. Download the Crypto.com app and get $25 when using the code LAURA, L-A-U-R-A. The link is in the description. Tezos lets you easily exchange smart money throughout our digital world. A self-upgradable blockchain with a proven track record, Tezos seamlessly adopts tomorrow's innovations without network disruptions today. Because of this adaptability, engineers, conservationists, entrepreneurs, collectors, game developers, and artists from around the world are building, creating, and using Tezos every day. Discover how people are reimagining the world around you on Tezos. Back to my conversation with Justin Drake of the Ethereum Foundation. All right. So you came up with this pretty interesting spreadsheet that had different projections for how this issuance versus burn and, and all that would play out. And, you know, as you mentioned, it's kind of too early to really say how well your projections have done because we just have 24 hours um, worth of data. But why don't you just describe what those projections look like from the conservative to the optimistic um, viewpoint? There's various variables that come into play. For example, if you want to estimate um, at what uh, ETH supply we will have when we peak at the merge. Um, and by the way, I, I, there's this, this really good tool on ultrasound.money where you can just play with the assumptions as sliders and there's a pretty graph which will just show you the projected <laughs> supply. Um, but basically the three key variables are one, how much ETH is being staked. So it turns out that the more ETH is being staked, the greater the proof of stake issuance. Um, and kind of in the, in the worst possible case, if, if, um, you know, all the ETH is being, uh, staked, we're looking at less than a million ETH issuance per year. The second variable is, um, how much are we burning every single day? So in the first 24 hours, we burned about, uh, 4.6 or actually closer to 4.7 thousand ETH. But, you know, we will see how that progresses. Uh, my guess, as I mentioned, is that this amount of fee burn will increase, for example, as we provide more utility through scaling, right? Because scaling is an opportunity to provide much more utility to many, many more people. And so even though the individual transaction fees will go down, the aggregate fee volume will be greater. At least that's what we've observed historically, uh, where the fee volume just keeps on increasing despite the uh, scalability uh, increases. Um, okay. And wait, just so I understand that, because when there's congestion on the network, people tend to pay much higher fees. Um, so what you're saying is even though the individual fee per person will decrease because scaling will enable so many more transactions, that aspect of it will increase the fees for miners or the tips yes. we should call them or, or well, it's, it would be both base fee and tip, I guess. Right, exactly. Yeah, base fee okay. and tip. Yeah, well, I mean, one of the things that we've observed historically um, as Ethereum has scaled, and it has scaled. So, for example, the gas limit when uh, Ethereum was created at Genesis was only 3 million gas per block. And now it's 15 million gas per block. So we've had this 5x increase in scalability. We've also had indirect scalability improvements, for example, as smart contracts 
um, get optimized for, for gas. So for example, you know, Uniswap v, v3 versus Uniswap v2 and various other uh, DeFi contracts have, have tried to optimize for, for gas. And of course, we also have various rollups, which are, are now live, providing even more uh, scalability. Um, and what we've observed historically is that, you know, as you increase um, utility, you also increase the, the transactional value that's provided by this, by this utility on an aggregate basis. What might happen is that in the short term, as you increase the supply, you'll have a supply sh- shock in the sense that you'll have you have too much scalability and then the kind of the fees dip. But over the long term, as adoption kind of picks up and fills this this uh, this gap, this demand gap, um, then the the end result is that the, um, the the final fee volume is much larger than the initial uh, fee volume. Okay, so that's the, uh, the the fee burn per day. And then you have the final variable, which is when we're actually going to merge, right? Because the proof of stake assurance is extremely high. It's 13.5 thousand ETH every single day. And so the, the sooner we merge, the, the better it is because the sooner we, we remove um, this, this huge fire hose of issuance that we're drowning under in the context of proof of work. Yeah. And so I've heard you talk about that as net sell pressure. Can you define that and um, describe what the net sell pressure used to be and how it's changed now or, or, you know, eventually will by the time of the merge? Absolutely. When a miner receives income in the form of either issuance or fees, they will sell most of that income. And the reason is that they have to pay their expenses. And there's basically three forms of expenses. One is hardware, two is electricity. And then there's a third one, which is a bit more subtle, which is the income tax. So my rough estimate, you know, because we're in a competitive market, basically the, the profit margins tend to zero. But let's say the profit margins are, are 5%, you know, very, very low for the, for, for, for the miners. Um, if in effect, they're going to be selling almost all of the ETH that they receive. Now, when you compare this to uh, proof of stake, not only is the income much, much lower because the one, the, uh, the issuance is r- roughly 10 times smaller, but two, a large portion of the fees are, are burnt. When you compare and contrast the two systems kind of from a week ago to post-merge, we're actually in a situation where we're going to be reducing the sell pressure of Ethereum by 7 million ETH every single year. That's roughly the equivalent of all the ETH being staked right now. Um, every single year that is not being sold. So you can kind of think of it as buy pressure relative to the past. Um, so, uh, yeah, in the recent past, we've just had this huge damper, dampener on effectively the ETH price. And the reason is because there's lots of ETH that just goes on the market to be sold, to go buy for electricity, to go pay the taxes and to go buy the hardware. Um, and, and this 7 million ETH, um, is, is, is no longer, um, going to be, to, to be sold. And 7 million ETH at current prices, that's what, that's something like $20 billion, right? So that's the equivalent of roughly $20 billion of buy pressure in the future, rel- every single year relative to the past. The taxes, you also mentioned you, you were going to describe that. So can you talk about that? 
Yes. The so, income tax pressure. So in the, in, with proof of stake, the, the main sell pressure, because th there's no uh, expense in terms of hardware or electricity, the main sell pressure is actually income taxes. You receive uh, ETH rewards and you just have to pay some fraction of it to the government. And in, in order to, to pay it, you know, you have to go ahead and, and sell it. And, you know, income tax in, in most jurisdictions is, let's say, around 50%. Uh, and so the profit margin for uh, stakers is also roughly percent, roughly 50%, uh, 100% minus the, the 50% that goes towards taxes. So we have reduced sell pressure for kind of two reasons. One is because the profit margins for stakers is, are much higher. And two, uh, because the the, the the income that comes in in the first place is much, much smaller in this new system with EIP-1559 and proof of stake relative to the proof of work system without EIP-1559. So one other aspect I wanted to draw out for this period between now, uh, between now and the merge is I was looking at the burn leaderboard on the ultrasound.money website, and it's fascinating because it's basically a snapshot of what's hot in Ethereum right now. And um, so it, at least when I checked right before we recorded, it led with OpenSea, then it was followed closely by COVID punks, which I actually hadn't heard of until that moment, then Uniswap V2, then Axie Infinity, then Tether, then Uniswap V3, MetaMask, and finally USDC. So um, I was just curious, like, what does that say to you about how those were the biggest contributors to the burn and, you know, how do you think this will play out in terms of like what will be driving uh, ETH to get burned in the near future? Right. So, I mean, if at a kind of a macro level, the, the, the fact that we have almost 5,000 ETH being burnt in 20, 24 hours kind of suggests that Ethereum is providing a huge amount of transactional utility. Now, as you say, it is very interesting because now we have more insight into you know, which contracts specifically are providing you the utility. Um, and, you know, you highlighted a few, for example, which are uh, NFT and a few which are in DeFi. And I guess roughly, you know, ballpark is kind of 50-50. Um, and, you know, you, you, you mentioned this, this, this COVID punk, you know, they basically what happened here is that there was this, this really intense period of roughly, I know, half an hour or an hour where the, 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 the base fee kind of uh, spiked uh, you know, to something like uh, 300 Gwei or, or 400 Gwei. And there was a huge amount of, of, of burn in, in that concentrated amount of time because they were actually um, minting a, a new NFT set. Uh, and so people were kind of competing to grab this NFT as, uh, uh, because there was the, a limited supply. Um, and the OpenSea also suggests that people not only are kind of buying these NFTs, but they're also, uh, you know, trading them. Um, and that's, that's, that transactional utility is reflected in, in the burn for OpenSea. And then there's this, these, this other category, which I guess is the DeFi category with, uh, things like, uh, like Uniswap. Um, and actually we, we do have this other category, which is interesting, which is gaming. Um, and one of the things that I'll say is that at the Ethereum Foundation, our, our main remit, what we focus on is the consensus layer, the, the layer one. The, the layer two, we kind of want to, we want it to be as organic and as, you know, flamboyant and, and permissionless as, uh, as possible. Um, and so, you know, I'm just very excited to see, you know, all this, this, this ecosystem be so vibrant. 
with, you know, as you said, there's, there's, there's these things that I had never heard of before. Like this, this COVID punk is kind of just came out of nowhere and just burnt 500 ETH in the matter of half an hour, <laughs> uh, which is a kind of a crazy idea. Yeah. I mean, to me, when I looked at it, um, it just reminded me because when, when I first started reporting on NFTs, I didn't realize how kind of gas heavy they were because I didn't understand from a technical standpoint, uh, you know, like it's not like an ERC20 token where you just have that one smart contract. Like you have to mint each of these individual objects. And so, you know, it just reminded me like, oh, right. NFTs take a lot of gas. And um, yeah, and then the Axie Infinity thing, you know, I, I've done some reporting on that. And yeah, like you can see, oh, yeah, this game is very popular right now. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think one thing I want to draw out here is, you know, there were people expressing surprise at the fact that gas fees increased after the upgrade, which mm. was counterintuitive since the change was being touted as something that would make them more efficient. So can you just explain why that happened? One of the things that I mentioned is that generally speaking, the, the, the fee market is extremely volatile. And so it's difficult to compare it kind of one day to another because there's, there's, there's a lot of noise. Another thing that I'll say is that EIP 1559 does not reduce the, uh, the demand for making transactions. And as such, it doesn't, it doesn't dramatically improve the efficiency. So it does, it does to a small extent try and avoid overpaying this idea of overpaying, but it's, it's not, it's not a, a huge thing. Um, and so one of the things that we'll be able to do actually in the coming weeks is kind of look at the data and see how much, uh, were users actually overpaying the miners to get into, in, into the block. One thing that I'll notice is that there's this concept of, uh, induced demand. Like when you improve something, there's just more demand for it. Um, so, you know, I already mentioned induced demand when you have scalability, when you improve scalability, just more people come in, but there's actually more subtle ways in which you can have induced demand. So one thing that we mentioned already is that EIP 1559 improves UX. It's just better to be transacting on Ethereum. And so because the user experience is better, people will just transact more. It's induced demand. You know, one, one example, for example, is I mean, even personally, like, let's say I want to make a transaction. I'm going to spend 10 minutes making my transaction or five minutes because, uh, you know, I've, I, I don't want to overpay for gas. So I set a relatively low gas price and then I wait a few minutes and it didn't go through. So I, I kind of give up and then I, I bump up my gas price and then, you know, it, it's just a whole faff. And then I end up taking, you know, t a whole 10 minutes just to make one transaction. If instead the UX is, I want to make a transaction, it just happens. Well, now, you know, 10 seconds later, I'm ready to make another transaction. So there's also induced demand in that sense. Another aspect in which there's induced demand is uh, what I call eco-pain. So right now, uh, or at least before EIP-1559, every time you made a transaction and you paid, for example, $10 in transaction fees, I knew that these $10 would really be bad for the ecosystem in the sense that $5, roughly roughly half would go to the landfills in the sense that you're going to buy this mining hardware, which will, you know, deprecate over time. And then the other half is going to be used as electricity, literally like as an electric heater, like $5 worth of, of electric heating uh, somewhere, you know, in, in the data center. 
And so I, I didn't feel good about making transactions on Ethereum in that sense. But post EIP 1559 is kind of the, is good for two reasons. On the, on the one hand, there isn't this, this echo pain aspect, but there's kind of this, this monetary, uh, pleasure, I guess, in the sense that you, you know that you're improving the monetary po- uh, properties of ETH when you do transact. Um, and I, I, so I think the, the, the behavior change of Ethereum users um, will will um, affect this the demand, so there'll be this induced demand. Hmm. I find that interesting. Um, so one other thing that I wanted to circle back to was we did talk about you know how Bitcoin is sound money and how now you know ETH is ultra sound money. Um, and one thing that I do know um, you know you have thoughts on is what Bitcoin might look like once it transitions to only transaction fees and there's no block reward. Um, can you talk mm. a little bit about, yeah, the security of that? Because um, that was something I don't feel like I'd heard before and was really interesting to me. Right. So when you look at um, the security of a, of a system, there's kind of multiple things at play. Like one is, for example, what is the the flavor of consensus. So you could have proof of work versus proof of stake. You could look at decentralization of the consensus participants. And then you can look at um, basically what is the fuel to the consensus engine? What are the incentives for these consensus participants to go do their work? Now, every single blockchain with no exception, as far as I can tell, is um, secured by issuance, uh, meaning that there's freshly minted tokens that are given to the consensus participants as incentives to go secure that blockchain, to go provide scarce resources to secure that blockchain. Now, a Bitcoin um, hopes to be secured by transaction fees, which is different from today where it's secured by issuance. And so there's kind of this, this grand experiment that Bitcoin is embarking itself on from a very, from a security standpoint, which is that can it be secured by transaction fees? And my I guess is that the answer is no. Um, and the answer is no for uh, several reasons. One is that you can look at transaction fees from a quantitative standpoint. So transaction fees originate from transactional utility. Now, Bitcoin is not optimized for transactional utility. The utility of Ethereum is non-transactional. It's in the hodling, right? So the way that you benefit from the utility of Bitcoin is you go buy a Bitcoin, you put it in a hard wallet, you forget about it for a decade, and then maybe in a decade, you go make another transaction to send it to the exchange and sell it. So you basically made two transactions over a period of a decade. And so the transactional utility is very, very small. And so the, the amount of transaction fees that the, the blockchain could hope to extract are relatively small as well. Um, and, you know, there's other aspects like the fact that, um, you know, there's very, very f- little block space in the first place. And so because there's very little block space, there's also very little opportunity to go extract um, these fees. And this is reflected empirically today, um, you know, when you look at the total fee volume. So if you go to cryptofees.com, I believe, you will be able to see um, that Ethereum has roughly 20 times the fee volume than Bitcoin. And the, the, the fee volume for Bitcoin is kind of laughable almost, like it's half a million dollars versus, you know, $10 million. There's, there's no way that money of the internet, you know, a hundred trillion dollar market cap can be secured by, you know, half, half a, a, 
a million dollars in fees. But there's actually um, another problem with transaction fees. So let's let's just assume that magically, um, you know, transaction fees will will be sufficient to uh, to secure blockchain to, to secure Bitcoin. For example, let's imagine that. Um, you know, every transaction fee is a thousand dollars. People are willing to pay a thousand dollars per transaction. There's this other problem, which is, which I alluded to, which is that transactions can be stolen from one miner to another. So if you have a transaction with a very large transaction fee, let's say a thousand dollar transaction fee or ten thousand dollars or a hundred thousand dollars, it can get included in block A or it can get included in block B. So let's imagine that block A included that transaction. Now, block B has a, 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 you know, the miner for block B needs to ask himself, do I mine on top of block A or do I mine on top of the parent of block A? Because if I mine on top of the parent of block A, then I can go take these very juicy transactions and include them in my block. So that's the concept of, of basically minor extractable value, MEV, which is the fuel for reorgs. Now, in a consensus system, you want this idea of convergence, right? You want all the miners to agree and converge very, very quickly on a chain. And this, this is achieved through issuance. Um, in a way, transaction fees is the opposite of convergence. It's divergence. It encourages forking. And so it would be in a, uh, you know, in a, in a situation where uh, Bitcoin is, is unstable. Now, another thing that I mentioned is that transaction fees are volatile. Um, and so, and, and they're also cyclical. For example, we know that on weekends, there's a dip in transaction fees. And then during the, the weekdays, uh, a bump. And so if there's zero issuance, what will happen when Bitcoin is only secured by transaction fees is that block times will, will closely match the incoming transaction fees because that's the incentives that are coming in. And so on weekends, you might have 20, 30 minute block times. And then on weekdays, you might have five minute block times, you know, um, because on the weekends, the least profitable miners will have to disconnect their mining hardware because they, there's not enough transaction fees to, um, to justify them running, uh, the hardware and paying for the, um, electricity. And so very, very quickly, you, you, you realize that, um, Bitcoin will be a very unstable system and it won't happen, you know, a hundred years into the future when the issuance is zero. It will actually happen 20 to 30 years into the future where the issuance will be, you know, close enough to zero. And the reason is that issuance decreases exponentially every four years it halves. And so even in a 20 to 30 year timescale, the issuance will be very, very small and most likely insufficient to secure the, 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 the Bitcoin blockchain. And so one of the things that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans uh, agree upon is this idea of predictability, right? We want to have a system which can be relied upon for decades and centuries. And we've taken a very different approach to predictability. Bitcoin has taken a short-term approach to predictability. We want they decided to not change since since they won. And basically the fact that you're not changing means that you can predict what will happen in the short term until of course, you know, the system is unsustainable and then something massive has to, has to happen. You know, for example, they could um, remove the, the 21 million block limit. They could start increasing the issuance again and, and, and start reviving the, the blockchain from a security standpoint. 
or you know, another scenario that I have in mind is that there is a decoupling of Bitcoin, the blockchain, and BTC, the asset. And BTC, the asset, which is super scarce, like gold, can go live somewhere else on another blockchain that will host it uh, for free. And that blockchain, for example, could be, could be Ethereum. Um, so that's another scenario that I see. Yet another scenario is for Bitcoin to start adopting some of the technical innovations that we've had on Ethereum, like for example, implementing EIP-1559 or implement, implementing proof of stake. And so this, this approach to predictability for Bitcoin, which optimizes for short-term predictability is very different from Ethereum, where we actually, we are happy to trade off short-term predictability. So if you look at Ethereum over the last six years, it's changed its monetary policy, for example, three times. It's once it reduced its block reward from five ETH to three ETH, and then it reduced it from three ETH to two ETH. And then it's reducing again, you know, with the, with EIP-1559. And then it's going to reduce it again with the merge. So we know we have this um, hardening, I guess, of the monetary policy over time via these, these various um, innovations. And we want to be in the, in the point where we're very happy with the system. We have one, guaranteed security. And two, we have this idea of being economically optimal in some sense. So once we've reached this, this optimal point, there'll be no more reason to change Ethereum because it will, it will already be kind of either optimal or kind of close enough to optimal. And so we'll have a, a, um, a system which will have evolved in the short term and not had the short term predictability. And then it reaches a point where it's good enough and then it can go live for decades and centuries. Hmm. Wow. This whole thing has been so fascinating. Um, I just wanted to ask when you said that potentially Bitcoin, the asset could just live on another blockchain that was, you know, that provided the security. Um, and you said potentially could be Ethereum. Would that be in the form of wrapped ether or like, you know, mm. there was that project that tried to do trustless BTC before. Like, how, what do you think that would look like? Great question. So in order for this migration to happen, I think it, it needs to happen kind of gradually. It, it, the, 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 the Bitcoin community is very opinionated and I, I, it's, it would, and it's difficult to reach consensus. And they've, they've, they've designed the system and the culture in such a way that the Bitcoin blockchain kind of never changes. And so you kind of need to find kind of a, a sly side door and, and strategy to, to try and, and and, and migrate the, the Bitcoin D asset onto Ethereum. And I think the strategy that kind of the plausible way forward that I have in mind is through these bridges. Now, these bridges need to have two properties, which, uh, we, we don't have both for. The first one is that the bridge needs to be trustless, right? Because if, if the bridge is not trustless, then we're basically trusting this, this centralized entity to to oversee the migration of you know one of the biggest assets in the world from one blockchain to another is just not viable, right? Which means wrapped wrapped BTC is out because that is managed yes. by a centralized party. So okay, keep going. Yeah, um, and the other property that you want is um, you, you want it to be collateral efficient. So there's this um, there's this project called uh, TBTC, uh, which which is trustless. But the big downside is that in, in order to create this bridge, 
for every single Bitcoin, you need to have more ether and reserves in value than, than the Bitcoin. And so it's extremely collateral and efficient. The good news is that there is this moon math technology, which allows Bitcoin to run smart contracts or, or to verify snarks. So it's called indistinguishability obfuscation. It's technology that we don't have today. It's very, very sophisticated theoretical cryptography, but it's plausible that in 20 to 30 years, we will have it. And that will allow Bitcoin to essentially run the EVM. And so once we have Bitcoin running the EVM, even with their tiny blocks, that's sufficient to have a two-way trustless bridge, which is fully collateral efficient. So you don't need any collateral. And so we will be in a position where Bitcoin will slowly start trickling towards Ethereum. And we're actually already seeing it. Um, if you go to uh, defipulse.com slash BTC, you will see over time the unavoidable, you know, increase of BTC on Ethereum. And I, I believe, you know, we're around 1.5% or something like that, maybe a bit less of the whole Bitcoin supply, which currently lives um, on Ethereum. And then there will be a breaking point for Bitcoin, a breaking point from a security standpoint, either you know, the, the blockchain gets 51% attacked because, you know, the, the assurance is way too low and the security is way too low, or it could get attacked in another way. For example, it could get attacked in the form of a quantum attack. So quantum computers are, are coming. If there aren't, um, you know, suitable preparations, which are done to protect the, the assets on, on the Bitcoin blockchain, what will happen is that, uh, one attacker or maybe a, a small handful of attackers would be able to basically steal lost coins from the past. Um, and that would be um, very bad. It would be kind of the, the equivalent of the DAO for Ethereum, where you know one of the worries of the DAO is that a single entity would have a huge fraction of the supply um, and and um, and you know basically destroy you know the the, the monetary value and and also the, the security story around proof of stake, which requires the stake to be to be decentralized. And so once there's this event that happens, you know the Bitcoin blockchain breaks, all the all the Bitcoin that hasn't yet migrated over to Ethereum can be deemed lost, and the new canonical home for BTC, the asset, can be Ethereum. Wow. I feel like this is going to be uh, fighting words amongst the Bitcoin community. Um, this whole thing is very fascinating. I, just out of curiosity, because you started as a Bitcoiner, um, do mm -hmm. you still consider yourself a Bitcoiner? Absolutely. Um, I mean, I, I, I hold Bitcoin um, and <laughs> I, I, I feel uh, you know, very uh, connected to, to, to Bitcoin and from a, you know, cultural, not cultural, but from a philosophical standpoint, right? What, what Satoshi was, was able to, to do was a real breakthrough for, for humanity. And we've seen over the, the period of 13 years, all the innovation that's come out of it. And I, the way that I see it is basically Ethereum is the accomplishment of Satoshi's vision. It, it, it is Bitcoin. Ethereum is Bitcoin in that sense. What aspect of Satoshi's vision is Ethereum? Like when you say that Ethereum is Satoshi's vision, what do you mean? Part of the, the vision of, of Satoshi was to provide uh, a, a decentralized uh, trust layer for, for, for the internet. So one, one of the things that uh, Satoshi 
um, tried to do in the very early days, and you, you have commits in the repo, is he tried to build a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace that built on top of this uh, money layer. So the natural pro um, progression of decentralized infrastructure is to start with money and then to start building building blocks that use this money. And you could have, for example, marketplaces and you can have escrow contracts um, and you can have stable coins and you can have, you know, reputation and you can have uh, identity like the Ethereum name system um, and you can have insurance. And once you have all these building blocks come together, um, you, you basically have the substrate for uh, the internet of, of value. Um, and I think this is the true Satoshi vision and this is what Ethereum is, is delivering. Wow, this whole thing is extremely, extremely fascinating talking to you. Um, one thing I will say is I have said in the past that I wished I could be around when Bitcoin transitioned to only transaction fees to see how that plays out. But um, if your theory is correct, then it looks like I might get to see what happens in 20 or 30 years because I will still be around then. Um, <laughs> so, um, all right. So we're over time, but I really have to ask you about something super important, which is this idea of ETH as ultrasound money becoming a meme. Can you talk a little bit about how that's happening? Like what you're seeing in the community? What are the aspects of this meme? Like what are you seeing in terms of uh, the development of this? Right. So, um, you know, kind of when the meme was, was introduced, um, I think it was something like uh, October 2020. It, it got, you know, a reasonable amount of attention on Twitter, but then it kind of got, got lost and people forgot about it. Um, until I was, um, part of the, of a, a bankless episode discussing ultrasound money. And this is where kind of the, the concept really became popularized and people, um, you know, started talking about it again. And one of the things that happened, which is very interesting is that David Hoffman, I believe, started wearing the bat signal. Now, what is the bat signal? It's basically a two emoji, the bat emoji and the sound emoji. And it was trying to be a play on words where, you know, because bats produce ultrasounds, kind of the, the bat signal is going to represent ultrasound money. And um, people just started copying the bat signal all over Twitter. And now we have over 2,500 Twitter accounts you know, huge accounts, including, you know, for example, the Axie Infinity account and many, many DeFi founders and, uh, you know, lots of prominent accounts uh, within the Ethereum space just adopting the, 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 the bad signal. And so, um, we have this, this meme, which is now seems to be spreading across the, the whole community. And now we have this, this, this website and the, you know, the, the word ultrasound money was picked up on Bloomberg. It was picked up on CNBC. And so, there is kind of a, a possibility that in the same way that kind of bats kind of infected the whole world with, with genes, you know, with, uh, with COVID, um, that a bat <laughs> yet again will infect the whole world with, with memes. <laughs> um, so, you know, one is kind of negative, but the other one is, is, is positive. And actually the, it's interesting because the word meme, um, actually comes from gene. The, the inventor of the, oh, the, right. the word meme kind of, wanted to create a word to describe the propagation of cultural information and the kind of the, the evolution process of these ideas 
which follows a very similar pattern to, to genes. Um, and so I think the analogy is really, really good in the sense that we have these viral ideas that go spread across the world. Um, now, right now, um, the, the meme has mostly kind of infected the Ethereum community, but it is possible that it will kind of go beyond this boundary and, and infect kind of a wider population. Hmm. Well, we will have to see. Um, yeah, this whole episode has been super, super fascinating. I really appreciate that you came uh, on the show to talk about it. Where can people learn more about you and EIP-1559 and the idea of ETH as ultrasound money? To learn more about me, um, you can follow follow me on, on Twitter. I'm Drake F. Justin. Um, to learn more about ultrasound money, um, there's four hours of content on Bankless, or two, two separate episodes that cover um, ultrasound money. There's also uh, the ultrasound money uh, website, and there's also the ultrasound money Twitter account. So lots of, of content uh, for you guys to consume. Okay, perfect. Well, thanks so much for coming on Unchained. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about Justin and ETH as ultrasound money, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, and Mark Murdoch. Thanks for listening. 